0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare Conversations about Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and I'm so delighted to be joined by Anthony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so, so
1: very, very excited for you to join us for our first episode over 1996's Scream. I say first episode because this will be our first episode in the Scream franchise. Not that this is our first podcast episode.
0: <laughs> Important clarification.
1: <laughs> yeah. So this is the first of a new franchise. We have we did our, our run through Nightmare. And I guess we just couldn't get enough of Wes Craven because we immediately finished our run of Nightmare. And we ran to Scream.
0: Well, and it's really not a surprise because before Nightmare on Elm Street, we did the Evil Dead franchise, right? So yeah. you and I, from the beginning, have always known that horror comedy was going to be mutually where we fell into the most sync, And so it just makes sense, not only that we would go to another West Craven t- series, but also that we would stay within this horror comedy world. I do want to quickly say, today is the Friday before Christmas, and I'm recording in my office, which means I am sure you are going to hear the merriment of everyone else outside my office, enjoying the fact it's the (laughs) Friday before Christmas, but I'm here recording because this is so much more fun for me. We enjoy the merriment that is Scream. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So I rewatched this film again. I don't know how many times I've seen it, to be perfectly honest, Uh, but I did go ahead and rewatch it for for this episode because I wanted to watch it as a podcaster because I I feel like that has been a very interesting perspective to to kind of think about like how i treat films as a horror watcher versus a scholar versus a podcaster yeah and i'm i'm gonna say it i think this might be a flawless film and if it is not flawless it is so close that i i'm still willing to like say it gets 100 out of 100 which anthony you reassured me is not a general consensus of this film
1: i mean i guess i can't speak for Every single person individually and what they think of Scream, but I can't speak to my experience at my most recent watching of Scream. I uh, I had the very, the pleasure of watching a screening of Scream with a whole bunch of people around Halloween uh, of this year,
0: like your friends and stuff, or strangers was at the brick
1: at San Antonio. So I guess I'm revealing my San Antonio allegiance a little bit here. But it was <laughs> at this fun, like art place in San Antonio. And they were doing a Halloween scream movie night. It, it was so much fun. It was actually a really cute venue. They had a whole bunch of like scream related cocktail drinks and things. I drank a bloody Barrymore, which was always that was so much fun um, to do. But the audience who I was there with, I think was probably my favorite part to watch the to watch because I had seen the yeah. movie several times. Yeah. I I love this movie. I guess spoiler alert as to where this episode is going, but the audience around me was not into this movie. Um, I I had brought a couple of my friends because I was like I know I love this movie and I want you guys to see it. None of them had seen Scream before. And my little corner was just dying with laughter. We were like we were we were having a great time at all of the stuff, but the rest of the room was basically silent. And I actually watched several couples walk out of the out of the screaming.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that's wild to me, but it makes sense in some respects, right? Because we have to remember that for a good chunk of horror viewers, they've never known a world that was pre-Scream, right? Yeah. In the same way that you and I talked about in our episode of The Exorcist, that that we struggle with this film in part because of the fact that we've never known a world that didn't have The Exorcist in it. So we've, we've never known a, a genre that wasn't influenced by this. And so there's so much about Scream that is just gosh darn transformational to the slasher genre, but also to just like meta narratives. But we've gotten to the place where we have so many of those that I wonder if people didn't always understand that every single moment in the film, every single moment should be one that you're laughing at, except for when you're truly terrified. Cause I think there are those moments too.
1: Yeah. I, I think that's a very astute observation because so much of our modern horror landscape is just, I mean, The recreations of the Scream type formula, which is like that meta deconstructive approach to Scream. I am that person who has never existed in a world without Scream being at least a frame of reference for me. And even before I had seen Scream, because it wasn't until the start actually of the the 2020 pandemic uh, when I first watched Scream. The reason I hadn't seen it is because I felt like I didn't need to. I was like, I know Scream. Scream's in the zeitgeist. It's It's the meta movie. Yeah, whatever, whatever. And then I sat down to watch it, and I was like, oh my god. It's not just, like, that meta movie or whatever. It is the formula for how you tell an amazing horror story and how you do amazing meta commentary without either one affecting the other one. Cause I feel the story in this movie is immaculate and the commentary and all of the silly meta stuff they're able to do is also equally as good. And they complement each other in a way that I think what we have gotten today in like more of the, like the, the scary movie and the post scream after that, the, the stuff that basically just ripped it off is you either have story, or meta-commentary. And this is just a perfect blend of both, I think.
0: Absolutely it is. And if you look at the scholarship that comes out about Scream, and there's a lot, right? Especially compared to some of those nightmare films where we were like, no scholarship this week. There is scholarship on Scream because it is a defining point, and because Wes Craven, although he obviously had made a name for himself in horror prior to this, this is the moment that he, again, for like the third or fourth time, redefined the genre. So there's a a pretty seminal piece by a scholar named Valerie Wee, uh, W-E-E, and... Her article is Resurrecting and Updating the Teen Slasher, The Case of Scream. And she talks about just what her title suggests, right? That, That Scream is doing something to the genre of slasher films that is so profound and so important that it's not just a commentary on the slasher film. It is actually a paradigm shift. In the slasher film so that's not just that you can say oh well i felt like this film was inspired by scream it's like there are pre-scream slasher films and there are post-scream slasher films so that's that's one of her big arguments and and other people people who are talking about her are making largely the the same argument so there's a book called style and form in the hollywood slasher film And came out in 2015, and one of the authors, her name is Fran Pheasant Kelly, has a piece called Reframing Parody and Intertextuality in Scream, Formal and Theoretical Approaches to the Postmodern Slasher. Yeah, she has a fantastic last name, Pheasant Kelly. That's a fantastic
1: last name and a fantastically intriguing title filled with some of my favorite academia buzzwords.
0: I know, parody, intertextuality, (laughs) postmodernism.
1: So I'm intrigued to hear more.
0: What I like about her title is that she really does a good job of putting into her title exactly what she's going to be talking about. So she says, in considering theoretical and formal approaches to analyzing Scream, this essay moves beyond Wee's analysis to consider the film more holistically. It not only takes account of its postmodern characteristics and revised characterization, as others have done, but also considers its aesthetic devices, particularly those that intrinsically horrify. Moreover, it suggests that even though Scream could be viewed as a composite of previous slashers, one might argue that it in fact distanced itself from them. Right. And so that that's sort of Pheasant Kelly's argument that, that we have a film that is, yes, admittedly serving as a parody. Um, and we'll talk about various moments that it is just clearly poking fun of in this uh, grandiose over-stylized way of the slasher film. But it is also, again, presenting us with a a new form of the slasher film, specifically postmodern. And we've talked about postmodernism a little bit on this podcast. But like, Anthony, when you think about postmodernism, as one does, <laughs> what comes to mind?
1: Postmodernism is, I guess, really just more of this idea that the world as we know it is, we like to view society as very fixed. And everything is just that is the way it is. Postmodernism is not interested in just accepting the society and the system as it is. It wants to be like what is the systemic cause of how did we how we got to here? It really is looking underneath the cover, which is why postmodernism is so often linked with disaffirmative text. Right. Because postmodernism and disaffirmative horror Both ask you, as an audience, if you're viewing it or thinking about it, to look underneath our societal curtain and be like, Oh my god, wait a second, there's so much that has to happen in order to maintain our perfectly normal society.
0: And Pheasant Kelly makes, I think, one of the best arguments for why this film can be ultimately disaffirmative. She writes... Actually, first she references we, So she says that we says, I do not believe the films, the Scream films, themselves are comic parodies of the slasher genre. While characters in the Scream films offer ironic observations about the convention of slasher films, the films themselves remain straight slasher films. And then Pheasant Kelly says, indeed, whereas Scream and its sequels are both ironic and reflexive, they differ from their successors, like Scary Movie, because they are nevertheless horror right and yes. in, in a way that yes. they're not making fun of they it is still a horror film in fact i would argue that it's a more powerful horror film because of its self-awareness and that is post-modernism right yes. post-modernism is this awareness that leaves you with no other conclusion but that the world is messed up and we are the problem and although you, i laugh pretty much from the credits onward because there's really very little to laugh about Uh, And there's a little, actually, to laugh about in the opening sequence, which we'll talk about in a second. Yeah. Uh, You know, even though I'm laughing throughout the entire film, I'm laughing because I know that what is funny is not actually necessarily the dialogue or it's not necessarily the scenes. It is what the scenes are commenting on. And that is that we are just completely effed up as as a culture, as a society.
1: And I think it's about, like the 90s feel like the perfect time for this paradigm shift in slashers because you kind of have, during the 70s, the initial birth of the genre through films like Last House on the Left, then you and then Black Christmas, which is not an American slasher, but a slasher nonetheless, and then, of course, Halloween. Those three texts in and of themselves, you get the initial idea of what a slasher is, and then for about 20 years, Bunch of horror films are pretty content to play within that mold. And then Wes Craven pulled, gives us a one-two punch where he says, maybe I'm not so satisfied with that, with this mold anymore. Maybe the paradigm needs to shift. And I'm not referring exclusively to Scream in that manner. I think he did it in 1995 with New, with New Nightmare first. And then this serves as his ultimate articulation of the kind of the necessity of the horror genre and slasher specifically to do a little bit more. To go a little bit further and not just default to these tropes and stand-ins for horror and instead being like no 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 we need to go back to why are these scary there there are reasons why a lot of these tropes are scary but ultimately because we repeat them so much the repetitiveness kind of wears us down to them and so we're not as afraid of them anymore and i think the comedy that craven uses both in new nightmare and scream kind of allows some of the tropes to be revitalized in a way that just playing them straight as they had been for 20 years was ultimately not as effective at anymore.
0: And I'm glad that you mentioned, you know, that reminder that like this kind of had to come out in the 1990s, mm-hmm. not only because of where Craven was in his journey, but also because of where we were in the century. So there's a, a French term that I like to slaughter as much as possible, that is a uh, fond de siècle. It is never spelt how you think it is pronounced, <laughs> but it, it refers to the end of a, end of a century. And, and we've had it, you know, in the 1890s is, is sort of when we had one of our first Fonzie siecles. Of course, we have it in the 1990s. And it is a period defined always by symbolism and decadence. Uh, if you are familiar with Oscar Wilde, right? He was producing his stuff in the 1890s. There's a reason that like the importance of being earnest is like, but what if there was more, right? And, and Scream is Craven's answer to that question. But what if there was more, right? What if we allowed ourselves to dwell in this moment of like decadence? How would that both inform a text, but also tell us things that we need to be aware of? Because the whole premise of this film in many respects is that we have allowed people to exist and particularly white men to exist in a space where they feel like they can do whatever they gosh darn want to do and that it is their right and their duty. And so there's this element of decadence in every single aspect of this film. Ooh, I think I'm I need to like it doesn't get 100. I think it gets like 150 out of 100. Gosh, darn it. This is a good film.
1: <laughs> yeah, it really is. I and I love that commentary because I think that that is the core of Scream. What you I think you've just gotten to the heart of is like it is we're afraid of a society that has empowered certain individuals to feel that they are entitled and can rule and lord over others individuals and i think that was first introduced in new nightmare but in the b plot uh in that film it is the fans treatment of heather and uh even england's treatment of heather and craven
0: and her husband's a little bit yeah
1: these men do treat her with like however they kind of want and use her as a prop But that's kind of the B-plot in that movie. There are a lot of other things that Craven is working out intertextually within his own franchise and his feelings about, particularly, (laughs) Nightmare Six that kind of get in the way of that being the central focus of that movie. And I think, frankly, that movie is better for it because it's able to be that kind of commentary. And then he moves that to the center of Scream. And my God, Craven, you've done a good work.
0: So I want to start with the opening sequence because we've talked about opening sequences before. The one that I I think everyone should have to watch is the opening sequence of Us. And just in terms of cinematography and in terms of setting up various elements. And I'm referring to just one of the many cold openings. uh, And I'm referring to the one that's set at the fair. If you want to know more about our thoughts on the cold openings of Us, check out our episode on that film. But the opening sequence of Scream, in other words, the sequence with drew barrymore i think everyone certainly everyone who who studies horror but everyone should have to watch that sequence i think it is just about as as perfect as it can be in terms of dialogue cinematography performance and and this is so incredibly challenging finding that balance between setting up a formula that is going to be very very obvious but still feel refreshing be comedic, but also horrifying, because you know there's the the line where Casey's character says, you know, like, oh, uh, all the rest of the Nightmare on Elm Street films sucked, but the first one was good. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, there's Wes Craven talking there, <laughs> but that final scene where Ghostface Killer has has made it so that she can't breathe and she can't talk, and her mom has to listen to her dying breaths. Every time I watch that, especially as I get older. I I just think about, I cannot imagine a worse fate as a parent or as a child, knowing that you were that close to safety and it is haunting, but the rest of it has been so action packed, so funny, so predictable, but oddly not just, it's so good and it sets up everything.
1: And it introduces you to the scariest thing of all is that like this thing that you are the whole lot, ideally the audience and people around you would be laughing at, but it's horrifying. Like, but in the end, the thing that you were all laughing at collectively, and you all collectively kind of were at least tacitly accepting and watching as a spectator, it went really badly. And you now get to then see the product of your inaction, which obviously you're an audience member, you can't change it but right you could
0: leave and and you're right we're laughing we're like why is she answering the phone again come on lady just don't answer it if you don't want to talk to a creeper i think you're absolutely correct that this film from start to finish is asking us what role do we play as consumers which is not an unfamiliar theme but it's certainly one that the craven really is is very adept adept at communicating and and then we of course find out that our our ghostface killers, uh, Billy and Stu, have figured out how to do all the things they're doing through horror films, right? So we have to ask ourselves, what is it that separates us from them, right? Uh, and and it, and I feel like the answer is more has to be more than we just didn't pick up a knife, right? So so there's so much at work there.
1: Yeah, because if you recognized all of these tropes enough to be laughing at them, then chances are you know these tropes well enough to enact them yourself question mark or at least that's the thing that the film is kind of forcing you as an audience member to maybe do a little reflection of yourself when in that it which is obviously something that a craven has been really interested in exploring is the role of the audience in in horror films because i mean he has been getting accusations since the 70s that his films and horror films in general are bad for society in general. And Craven's general response to that has pretty consistently been no, I don't think that is true. It's not the horror films that are the problem. It's the horrors of the world that are the problems and you taking this out on the horror films for showing us what our problems are is only going to make the problems worse. You don't get you don't get any solutions by denying that the problems are there.
0: Exactly. And I I think there's a really good scene Where he's like, okay, we're going to go deep into the, like, Alice in Wonderland world of craziness. And that is the moment that we, the audience, are watching Kenny, the cameraman, watching Randy, watching Jamie Lee Curtis. Right. And the whole time you know he's saying Jamie turn around turn around and of course uh, Randy's played by Jamie Kennedy so there's like multiple so many layers but we are watching someone watching someone watching someone and and we have to ask ourselves how does this work and the fact that there's that brilliant sort of like time delay which yeah. was just a clever device also allows us to further sort of ask ourselves you know like how removed can we be from the violence that we're watching is it enough to say oh it happens on a time delay or or it's not real right it's just corn uh, syrup and starch or whatever or do we need to say no actually you know there's something sort of again wrong with our society that that encourages us to continually find this and i don't think there's anything wrong with watching horror obviously i'm watching a lot of it yeah but craven doesn't want us to just sit comfortably with this he wants us to feel uncomfortable
1: yeah and it and it's not enough to just know the rules of the horror movie because as he seems to suggest anyone can kind of know the rules and just knowing the rules of a horror movie does not make you any smarter or better than anybody else which is that's a good i think that's a good thing for horror fans like even sometimes like myself you i can get a little wrapped up in in it and it's good to take a couple of steps back and realize okay just because you understand the conventions and can break down these tropes does not give you any more credibility over this uh, over this movie or this experience than anyone else. Particularly when you're not going to do anything with that knowledge of it. And you're just going to remain a passive spectator as Randy in that scene is doing.
0: Well, and I, I think that not only does he suggest that knowledge of horror does not necessarily make you better or more entitled but he also is clear through the Randy character that knowledge does not mean that you're necessarily fundamentally creepy or weird, right? Randy is sure he's he's sort of infatuated with Sydney, but he's not creepy levels of infatuation. And it would have been so easy to depict him as the creepy the creepy nerd because we've yeah. seen that stereotype an awful lot in horror. Yeah. And instead yeah. Craven says, you know, it's not the knowledge unto itself that's the problem. It is the attitude that certain people have enforced by culture that suggests that if you have this knowledge, you should be allowed to enact on it because what's going to stop you, right? You are rich, uh, you are white, you are male, and you are also part of the dominant group in every other possible way.
1: And I think it's interesting that then Craven gives another one of these dominant groups within our society, the media conglomerate. A female representation through the character of Courtney Cox.
0: Yes, Gail Weathers.
1: Gail Weathers, who is an absolutely iconic, hilarious character, who goes on a, a fantastic journey in of herself. That the, the journey that that character goes on, particularly with uh, Nev Campbell's Sydney, and just like their relationship and how the she used she did use the, the media to like really go after this after this person and then now showing that the media can do other things it's like the media attack but the media also preserve it is a necess- it is a it's but it's a difficult balancing act it's like a which is something that i think craven is just so good at bringing to the surface of being like the media yes has all this good potential to help bring light to cases and do all this good but the media also has this bad uh element of them where they focus mostly on just the drama and creating controversy.
0: So you're so correct that Courtney Cox's character. So Gail's development, right? She goes on this incredible journey where she, you know, at the end, because she's literally fighting for her life, you know, it becomes much more real to her. But what I find so fantastic is those final few minutes of the film where she's like, guess what, everyone? I have firsthand me, eyewitness account. And so she's going back into that cycle. And I I find that interesting, particularly because I think she's one of the more interesting character developments across the franchise, because most of the other characters kind of have a, like, general uphill, right? They're just kind of getting better and better, as in more moral, more good, more perfect as each film progresses. But, but Gail really has this more like spiral, right? Where she like constantly circles back and she's like, I don't know, maybe I don't want to be quite so altruistic. And then she's like, no, no, I'll rise above. And I think that's so important to have our our media presence be this thing that is neither really good nor neither bad, and certainly neither truth nor falsity. It's somewhere in between, always. And that's postmodernism, baby! And that is postmodernism, and that is, I think, you know, Craven's point, that we turn to horror and we're like, oh, well, this is just fake. And it is, in terms of the killings, but it's not fake in terms of how we have decided that certain people deserve to be punished. And that's, gosh darn it, there's just so, so many layers uh, and so much packed into into this just an indie of the individual characters right i think that's what's lovely is that all of the characters that are sort of the primary so randy tatum Stu, billy sydney dewey who we have to talk about at some point and gail right so are sort of seven core characters Each of them offers something really important, not just in terms of the narrative, but in terms of this bigger understanding of of things that we need to be aware of. Because
1: you get the idea that all of these characters are pretty angry with the world around them, but they're, they're also not clearly at the top of this world or clearly at the bottom of this paradigm and hierarchy that is established for each of them. They're somewhere in that middle area between extremes between these major options or even in like again to go back to that the news character courtney cox's character this is clearly someone who is trapped in the middle of a system that has been abusing and manipulating her for so many years now her response is then to also continue that manipulation in the real world to other people and negatively affect them But you kinda get where the if that's the only world view that this person has ever been exposed to, how it would be so natural just fall into these cycles and just repeat these processes over and over and over again. Almost like horror. Huh. I wonder if that ties in any way to the main
0: theme. No, I don't know. I'm sure I'm sure that was just a (laughs) quinkity. And even even the character that perhaps has the least development, Tatum, we we do get to see that, you know, she's been cast as the the perky blonde who, I mean, has even the, like, required pointy nipple scene, right? That it's like, dear heavens. But, but at the same time, we do sort of see her dissatisfaction of, like, she doesn't want to just be the sidekick, right? The sidekick to Sydney, the sidekick to Stu. And of course, she, she dies before she gets to be fully developed, but there is that sort of uncomfortableness that we see especially in her interactions with dewey that even the she doesn't want to just be the the character that dies first yeah and, and i think that's just very fascinating how even such an underdeveloped character can offer us so much
1: all of these characters are deeply discontent with the roles that they've been cast as to continue more of like i guess a sociological understanding of this from a view of like a masks and the masks that you have to wear in your everyday life all of them are very discontent with this mask that they have to put on, which I, uh, I guess is then why in uh, the case of Stuart and Billy, they then choose to put on an entirely different mask and take and embody an entirely different role. And so it's you it's, uh, that which I think is also really interesting because it is in one way Billy and um, Stuart's response is perhaps the most outwardly transgressive and definitely changes the narrative the most but it is just again an extreme response
0: yeah i want to i want to talk about them in more detail but i want to talk about a couple other things first because i think i think they're a big sort of meaty thing so one of them is just sort of like a throwaway comment force for our discussion on scream 2 but i i think and i'm really excited that scream 2 develops the character of cod and weary further (laughs) <laughs> and I, I have to just put out there that I always think that his name is Codden Mather, who was a New England Puritan minister in like the 1660s to 1720s. And he wrote just like all this stuff about guilt because he was Puritan. And yeah. like, you know, God. and it And I don't know... I have no evidence that that was intentional on Craven's part, but like Codden is such an unusual first name. So I think there's so much that's going to happen with that character, which I'm just excited to talk about. But I also have to just put out there, I always think it's Codden Mather, but that is the Puritan minister. But I want to talk about Dewey as a way to lead into Stu and Billy. Deputy Dewey Riley. Deputy Dewey Riley. Two of my favorite scenes with him is is the one where he's in the sheriff's station and Tatum is like, Dewey, we want to leave. And he's like, you, you know, mom said you can't yell at me. This is my workplace. Um, and then there's the scene where the captain or sheriff or whoever he is, is smoking. And Deputy Dewey is licking ice cream, right? And like yes. strawberry ice cream at that. And it's it's interesting to have this character that is being presented to us as, as one that is defying at the same time that he's embodying what we are saying are the traditional desirable masculine traits because he is fit. You know, he's not unattractive. He is diligent. He is not uneducated or he's, he's not super bright, but he's not stupid. But at the same time, he's a little stupid. He's very passive. He clearly is undermined in, you know, in every part of his life. Uh, And, and yet he's our something right like he's not quite our hero he's he's certainly not our villain but he's definitely not our saving hero right that's the women uh in this film but i i just find him to be a really interesting character because i think in large part it it is david arquette's performance that makes him more interesting than than he might otherwise be on paper
1: yeah i think you're i think you're right i although i do think that there is still an interesting relationship even there just on the paper outside of yes yes body that is true. performance because there is something really interesting about putting like it's such a passive character into a authority role i mean the police are common they're common in horror films they're common in our real life too and they're
0: common in craven films and they're too.
1: very common in craven films and
0: yet again
1: to just uh, he's not in like so many characters he's not completely incompetent and Passive, but he certainly is not the most active, and not leading any reforms or changing any of these. Really addressing any of the problems head on, he's very content to just kind of like keep the head down and be like, "Okay, I understand that the world around me is really messed up and bad,
0: and listen, I even may be participating in an
1: unjust system, but it's better to not think about it."
0: Yeah, what's interesting is that in in Nightmare on Elm Street, the 1984 film, and we talked about this at length because the film is a condemnation on particularly the police system as an institution because the whole franchise is about institutional problems right by having the father figure in that film be a police officer the police are literally the failing patriarchy in this film though we have Dewey, and we also have Henry Winkler's performances as as the the principal. principal. And there's this weird moment where he cups Sidney's face and he's like, is this okay, dear? And I'm like, whoa, that is weird. Yeah. But Craven is offering us something a little different, right? It's not the institutions necessarily that are failing us, although they are. It's more like the institutions don't have a hope in the first place, right? Like that it's not the institutions that are the problem of education or the police force. It's the fact that the rest of the bigger culture is so messed up that it doesn't matter if you have a caring principal, it doesn't matter if you have a sort of competent deputy because they're, they're not able to do enough in a system that allows, again, Billy and Stu to, to do the things they do. And so, like you said, they all fall in this range of of being held in in this place where they can't achieve their, their highest levels and they haven't sunk in completely low and we get to see how different people react to that. And of course, again, our white, cis, heterosexual men decide that that the answer to that is to take out anyone in the way. And then all of our other characters that are more complicated are like, well, maybe that's not the solution. And maybe I, I
1: do really like that those two, the two characters that ultimately do snap, like Stuart and Billy, and who are the perpetuators. Of violence on other characters within this system, and actively because so much, there is a lot of violence that is just passively perpetuated in this world and oh, shown, yes. but they're active perpetuators of the violence. They're also probably the they are the most privileged individuals of the main seven cast, and yet it is still them who is so fed up with the system and the world that they ultimately have to take action in their own hands, they, they, they view. And I think that is a absolutely fantastic assessment of, uh, the, of what happens so often within our world because a Scream has been accused of, uh, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about real world Screams on our spooky scrap of this and real world scream uh, how it affected in the real world how it's been talked about portrayed Um, but there have been a lot of kind of like similar killings to this where it's just kind of privileged people who are uh, angry with the world that they're in who then use the privilege that they've been afforded to take it out on others who are in less privileged positions
0: yeah because so first off Apparently everyone in Woodsboro just has an astonishingly beautiful home because Sydney's home, like her, her porch balcony area has multiple table sittings. Like it is, it is bigger than some restaurant balcony porches. Uh, and, but Stu's house, which Gail describes as a farmhouse and like, that's no farmhouse that I've ever seen. Yeah, It's huge. And he's wearing like a Hugh Hefner, uh, you know robe at one time. And even though I always, for some reason, think of Billy as being lower cl- or to lower to middle class, I think it's because he's always wearing white t-shirts and jeans and then his hair is always a little greasy. But that's just Skeet Ulrich. His When his dad shows up, he's wearing a suit. He's very fancy dressed. And so you're absolutely correct that these are, are very affluent characters. And I think one of the scariest lines in the entire film for me is after... Stu has been stabbed multiple times over and he's like bleeding and, and he's like so goofy, right? Like he picks up the phone and he's like, hello. And he's like, did you really call the cops? And she says, you know, you bet I did. And then this is the line that, that terrifies me every time. He says, my parents are going to be so mad at me, right? That is the thing that worries him the most. Not that he has killed people, including someone that scorned him and probably someone that, you know, has, has punished him in school. It is the fact that his parents are going to be upset with him. And then we have to just wonder, like, is, is he worried about having, you know, like his toys taken away? Because he's certainly not worried about prison time. That is the sign, right, of an ultimate uh, sociopath, someone who, who's just like, I don't it's not right or wrong. It's just I don't want to get in trouble. And that is scary.
1: Isn't it brilliant, though, though, that they're not afraid of the like supposed hands of justice or our law and order system that we have in place? Because and they joke about it. They're like, it's not going to protect you it's not designed for you it so they're not, of course they're not afraid of that and they don't think of it as being a you know, potential possibility for them because that is what they have been conditioned and told their
0: entire life right so there's the moment where sydney says why are you doing this and and like we find out that Stu doesn't really have a good reason other than this like his love for for billy which is a whole separate other thing that's worth exploring right there's a real couple of not a couple
1: those final minutes of the film
0: are so homoerotic right because like Stu actually puts his, like, face on on Billy's shoulder, right? And Skeet Ulrich and Matthew Lillard are, like, real intimately, physically close to one another. And then they are penetrating each other with a knife, right, over and over. So there's yeah. that whole thing. But we find out that Stu's reason is that he's in this, like, sort of homoerotic slash not erotic thing. But yeah. Billy's excuses: your mom, you know, did something wrong. She She made my mom leave. And so she had to be punished. And of course, you know, Sydney has that line about like him being a mama's boy. But there's something really important in there that, that Billy admits that he knows his dad had an affair with Sydney's mom. But only one person in that equation, in his opinion, had to be punished.
1: Yeah, only one person was at fault. Yes. And it's not his dad who made the choice against the marriage, it's yeah. somebody else who entered into this equation.
0: Yes and there's something that is never definitively proven one way or the other in in this film but i think has some very haunting ramifications so we we know that sydney's mom was raped and killed we also know that codden had had sex with her shortly before she died but there is a difference physiologically between consensual what consensual sex looks like on the body versus rape and even though at no point do either Billy or Stu confess that they, they raped Sydney's mom. The implication is there, right? Um, because if she was indeed raped and again, I think they would have noticed that it wasn't consensual. Then, you know, again, not only does she need to be punished by being killed by having her life taken, she needs to be physiologically punished, which is something we're real keen on doing in the United States. And that is determining what should happen to female bodies and when. And, from, from the very start where Billy's like, I don't understand why you're not over your mom's death. It's time to, to give me what I want.
1: Time to have some sex with me now because I de- I deserve the sex with you. Uh, yeah. So you've got to put, so you put your, bury your trauma for me, please. So yes. that then you can engage in my, in what I deserved and owed, my right to have yes. sex with you. That was a great scene too. And great in the sense that it was so creepy and I yes. was so uncomfortable. Uh, but also great in the sense of you're like, are you, Did we just actually accidentally record a conversation between a, between two teenagers? Because that is a great yes. dialogue. It's so uncomfortable because you're like, I've heard someone tell me this story before. So I have heard of some girl tell me that their boyfriend is trying to guilt them into having sex with them.
0: Well, and Sydney, she receives nothing to counter this, constantly says, like, there's something wrong with me because I'm not doing it. And Tatum's like, well... Maybe there is. Right. And certainly Billy's like, yeah, there is. Yeah. And that moment at the beginning when they're uh, making out and then she tells him to leave. And by the way, never, ever, ever should someone find the pickup line. I was watching the exorcism thought of you to be a sign of anything other than danger. Yeah. Just
1: bad taste at the fair minimum. bad
0: taste. Yeah. When she says, will you settle for a PG-13 relationship? And she flashes him. He says, tease. And he says it in a way that she laughs, right? Because she thinks that he's joking because she doesn't think that he's about to like kill everyone. But you can tell, even in the performance, but certainly in rewatching, that that he's not saying this in like this. Well, there's no endearing way in which someone calls someone a tease, right? That's not an endearing nickname. Just again, he thinks this is right. And so much of this film just really shows us what happens when we when we allow certain groups of people to feel privileged enough to determine the narrative for other people the last thing i want to talk about because i think this will set us up nicely for a continued discussion of of scream which i i haven't seen any
1: screams beyond oh my gosh i am so 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 happy to scream again (sighs)
0: Yeah, I'm so excited. I will say I don't think any of them are the 150 out of 100 that Scream is. <laughs> I well, you 150 out of 100 is yeah. a, it, it's a pretty good rating. So I, I understand. It, <laughs> there's a line in the film where Billy says to to Sydney, like, all of life is a movie. And, you know, you don't get to decide what genre it is, right? And, and so I want to leave us there because I, I think that's where Scream 2 onward become really interesting is that they're like, okay, well, what other genres do we need to have Sydney's life be that are still going to be horror? And so it's it's just a very exciting place to be. And it
1: just goes back into that like idea of you don't have you don't really get to pick what role you get to play, but you do get to pick how you react to the larger world genre wise, which is so fat. It's because it's still in and of itself an admission that you don't you don't really have that much choice over where you are.
0: But time and again, Craven makes sure that our our female characters are taking everything that they can and claiming all the agency they can within a, a broken system. Because I think he offers us some of the best female characters. They're not perfect, which is what makes them great. And they are just like, hey, maybe I'm not going to let you come back from the dead. This time I'm just going to make sure you die. And, and the fact that, you know, our women are the ones that are killing our killers is just so nice.
1: It's fitting that this paradigm shift uh, of the slashers is also a bit of a a paradigm shift for our final girls. Nev and company are such interesting final women in this. And I think that's a great place to end our discussion because we will return back to Scream again. Uh, We'll talk about Scream 2 uh, a little later in a couple more episodes. But in the meantime, what should people who are listening to us at home do?
0: a couple of things. So first, they should know what our next episode is going to be, because we're going to do what we did for Nightmare uh, on Elm Street, and we're going to stagger our series episodes. But we are not going to end this conversation of what it means to be the final girl. And so our next thing, and you should start reading now, Anthony, what should they start reading?
1: You should start reading. And I mean this both just because we're doing an episode on it, and also because it's from a super interesting horror author. Uh, You should start reading My Heart is This Chainsaw by Stephen Granham-Jones. It's a book about Final Girls that just came out in 2021, a month after another book about Final Girls that we, the Final Girls Support Group, which we have another episode about. So we're going to be talking about it in relation to that, in relation to Final Girls, and of course just unpacking all the goodness in this book
0: and in between your reading it would mean the world to us if you would take a moment to give us a rating interact with us on social media all of our information is below in the des- in the description of this episode because we like to hear from you and when we hear from you we can make sure that we're doing episodes on the things that you want us to do episodes on but also we just like to hear your opinions and thoughts because you've been listening so kindly to ours so Thank you so much for listening to our nightmares. And have a spectacular day.